Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week, we're looking into a piece that you have definitely heard before. Now, that might sound presumptuous, but I'm pretty <laughs> confident in making that assertion because it's been used in movies, cartoons, commercials, and of course, in opera and concert performances for which it was intended. And that's right. If you've been hearing it in the background here, it is The Ride of the Valkyries. It's from Richard Wagner's Die Valkyrie, and we will get right into the history of this opera and the piece in just a moment. But first, of course, we will talk about Wagner himself. Now, of course, we did cover Wagner way back in episode 10, but unless you've been listening since the inception of this podcast many years ago, you might not have heard that, so we're going to rehash it here. Um, now, of note, we do recognize that Richard Wagner had some very problematic views, anti-Semitic in particular, um, and he was later lauded by the Nazi party as the pinnacle of Anglo-Saxon music. It's a little bit problematic, so we're not really going to focus on that. Um, we, as the Coffee House, do not uphold these views, and today we're going to be simply looking at the artist and his art from a musical perspective. So, the artist himself. He was born in 1813. And his father, Karl Friedrich Wagner, died soon after. His adoptive father, Ludwig Gier, was of the artistic type, being both an actor and a painter. And so from this upbringing, it seems almost inevitable that Wagner then would have a grand career in the arts. In his schooling at Kreuzschule in Dresden and Nikolaischule in Leipzig, Wagner was a fairly poor academic student, preferring to dabble in theater and music instead. And so in 1828, he began taking harmony lessons in secret with Christian Gottlieb Müller, and finally in 1831, entered the Leipzig University to officially study music. Now, while at school, he apparently studied composition extensively and composed a handful of works. And of course, recall in many an episode in the past, we have talked about the War of the Romantics, not really a war per se, but more of a debate. And Wagner was, of course, firmly established on the program music side. So it appears that he was not always this way, of course, not always wanting his pieces to tell a story, um, such a scene with his symphony in C that was written while he was at school. And this was an attempt to actually closely mimic the style and sound of Beethoven's symphonies. During this time, he attempted to write stage works, which was the beginning of his later operatic greatness, but none of them were quite completed and many were destroyed. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Wagner tried to keep his schooling hush-hush later in his career, <laughs> potentially so as to make his greatness seem self-taught and thus all the more miraculous. <laughs> Can you even imagine not having the credentials and just showing up one day saying, hey, I can do this cool thing? Yeah, the reaction would be you, liar. <laughs> His first job after he graduated was as chorus master in the Würzburg Theater. While holding this post, he was exposed to some of the opera greats, including Weber and Rossini, as well as some artistic friends that really began to shape his later ideals. He got to hang out with the, quote, real romantics, 
the writers, the radical politicians, the dreamers, etc. And they strongly rejected the classical ideals of level-headedness, symmetry, and order. Instead, they looked for more tumultuous themes and passions. Think like the Sturm und Drang style. At this time, Wagner was inspired by the popular Italian-style operas, such as those written by Bellini. These featured bel canto, or beautiful song, lines, as mimicked by Wagner in his Mediterranean take on Shakespeare, Das Liebesverbot, or The Forbidden Love. Just a year after taking his first job, he fell in love with a leading lady of a traveling theater company, Mina Planner, and got a job with that company, led by Heinrich Bertmann, which he kept for two years. He married Mina with all the expected relationship drama in 1836. In 1837, Wagner got yet another job, this one in Riga, Livonia, as the music director in the theater there. And here's an anecdote about silly Wagner. Not only did he share his small apartment with his wife, but also with her sister, and also with a dog of sorts. Some sources say that this dog was maybe a Newfoundland, others say that maybe it was a baby wolf, or perhaps it was just a King Charles Spaniel, which would make more sense for such a tiny apartment, but nonetheless, quite cramped quarters. And the theater here, unfortunately, was not a site of greatness either, and Wagner frustratingly had to assist with an unimaginative subscription concert series while here. Can you imagine? Oh my. <laughs> How unimaginative. And Wagner desperately needed to leave. He had grand schemes that he would get back to Paris. However, being a young musician in a not-so-great job, he was of course in debt, and also his passport had been impounded, which is inconvenient. Undeterred, he and his wife and his dog theatrically escaped right under the noses of the Cossack guards. They stowed away on a ship in the middle of the night in stormy and a dangerous passage through the Norwegian fjords. And this experience apparently led to Wagner's Flying Dutchman Overture. He did eventually make it to Paris, and with a letter of introduction from Meyerbeer to Habeneck, the director of the Paris Opera. This was enough to get his foot in the door, but due to extreme social problems in Paris at the time and understatement, Wagner still <laughs> failed to make any sort of decent living. Wagner's first success came when his opera Reinzi, which was a story of the lower class rising up to overthrow the nobles, another timely release, premiered in 1842. In 1843, The Flying Dutchman premiered, which was also a fabulous success. But soon he was fed up with Paris, and Wagner was looking to return to Germany, and these two works made him a contender for the position of Kapellmeister in the King of Saxony's court in Dresden. He did get the job, but it was for second-in-command, Kapellmeister. Aw, poor Wagner. However, he wrote notable pieces in honor of the king during his employment here, and he also began work on his next major opera, Tannhäuser, which was premiered in 1845. Also during this time, Wagner began proposing plans for a National Opera House of Germany. He wished to see the role of the opera in society rise up, but due to more political tensions, his plans were unfortunately rejected. There was a lot of anti-monarchy tensions about, and a new state establishment really would have rocked the boat in a lot of unsavory ways for a lot of people, so Wagner kind of kept his hands out of that for a while. 
Speaking of which, and somewhat ironically for his later views, Wagner also began to become acquainted with some radicals such as Mikhail Bakunin, a Russian anarchist, and the ideas of Karl Marx. But amid these political struggles, Wagner still found time to sit down, a lot of time, to sit down <laughs> and write his masterpiece, The Ring Cycle, of four operas, whilst he was still employed by the court. Maybe we'll talk about The Ring Cycle at some point. Uh, We're talking about of, The Ring Cycle today. More of The Ring Cycle, <laughs> if you want to listen to a 14-hour podcast. But... <laughs> Due to Wagner's involvement with these radicals, an arrest warrant was placed for him, and he was sheltered by his musical compatriot Franz Liszt before fleeing to Switzerland. And now, the further adventures of Wagner in Switzerland! While in Switzerland, Wagner gained some wealthy patrons who allowed him to compose and write just as he wished. So finally, in 1853, the libretto, or the words and story, for the ring cycle was actually completed. But he still needed to set it all to music. Luckily, preliminary reactions to the writing was favorable, so Wagner was able to go on with the composition, and he actually got to utilize his pioneering vision of leitmotifs. Allison. What is a leitmotif? Asa, that is a great question. Thanks so much for asking. Leitmotifs were musical ideas that were soundly linked to a certain character, object, feeling, event, place, etc. They were meant to be signals to the audience about foreshadowing or actually calling back to some past event or just kind of generally following the plot through this 15-hour ring cycle. If you're still kind of wondering what a leitmotif is, Leitmotifs are used extensively today, especially in works to follow movies. Uh, movies or video games or things like that. Um, the most common example of a leitmotif in modern film is the in the works of John Williams, mm -hmm. where these small bits of, uh, of, of musical... Well, it's a motif, right? A small musical <laughs> motif. It can be as, as, as simple as a couple notes. But it keeps dun, coming back. Dun, 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 exactly. Dun, 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 dun. So that Which is Darth Vader's yeah. leitmotif. <laughs> um, but there are more woven throughout. And, and, and in these pieces, it's really cool to listen to them critically in parts of the movies where these characters are interacting, where these leitmotifs are then woven into that music um, mm -hmm. so that the, the music on its own can tell a story which, of course, was much more important back in Wagner's time when they did not have George Lucas to do all the <laughs> script writing for them and the staging. And Well, I'm glad that George Lucas didn't write the script for uh, Ring Cycle, but... Um, <laughs> you know, some people have kind of described it more like um, Lord of the Rings, you know, Ring yes. kind of being a theme there. So, you know, Tolkien could potentially have written the Ring Cycle... Or perhaps we can say Tolkien took things from the ring cycle. You know, it all is, yeah. it's all connected. <laughs> all, all the great art builds on what came before it. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> so thank you for that diversion of the leitmotifs. I hope, You're listener, that you understand it now. <laughs> uh, maybe go listen to some soundtrack music and see if you can think about characters while you listen to it. And maybe you'll understand. So anyway, back to our biography here. 
Also during this time, Wagner's marriage was terribly unhappy, and he, quote, separated from Nina, yet still gave her a suitable living allowance, as he still cared for her, which is nice. But unfortunately, she did die in 1866, which left him free to pursue a relationship with Cosima von Burlow instead. A romantic composer with marital problems? Preposterous. Good fortune finally came to Wagner in 1863 when a new monarch, King Ludwig II, took the Bavarian throne and forgave Wagner's debts. And if you'd like, check out episode 90 for more on the cool King Ludwig II. (laughs) With this forgiveness, Wagner was able to purchase a lovely home and convince the king to allow for the building of the music school in Munich. This was seen by some as exploitation, and the king in 1865 ordered Wagner once again to leave Munich. But this was actually fine with Wagner. He sought out a location to start a long-time dream of his, an opera festival in his very own opera house. And this dream was lived out in Beirut with the construction of the theater beginning on Wagner's birthday in 1872. What a good birthday present to himself. (laughs) Gotta treat yourself. The Beirut Opera House was a magical place. Wagner knew his orchestra scores would be loud, and he needed singers who would project over that wonderful orchestral texture. So to do this, he both sought out the best of the best of singers, and the Opera House also provided them with the best possible acoustic environment that would allow their voices to carry. This grand opera house also allowed Wagner to have complete control over his entire operatic production, from the music to the staging. And this was a concept called Gesamtkunstwerk, which is total work of art. The playing of the complete ring cycle at the Beirut Festival actually continues to this day. You could go see it. You might want to bring some coffee, though. I think it actually takes a whole week for them to put it on. They don't do it all in one day. I would not be surprised. Now, Wagner, possibly because he spent all of his time sitting around watching The Lord of the Rings, began having heart problems and he died in Venice in 1883 from a heart attack. His body was carried out of Venice by gondola and transported back to Germany for proper burial. So now, let's ride out to the battlefield with Ride of the Valkyries. As we mentioned, this bit of music is from the opera Die Valkyrie that Wagner wrote between 1854 to 1856. And this opera is the second of the four that comprise the Ring Cycle series. You really can think of these works really along the same lines as the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars and that they follow the hero's journey and they definitely build on each other. And the world is so rich in lore that you almost have to believe it's true. The plot of the opera introduces and revolves around the human race, as the first opera in the cycle, Das Rheingold, centered entirely on the gods. Loosely, the plot of Die Valkyrie tells of Siegfried, who falls in love with Sieglind, and this romance is helped by the warrior goddess Brunhilde, who is the daughter of the king of the gods, Wotan. Now, Siegfried is actually a human son of Wotan, which comes into play much more in the next two operas of the cycle. The actual piece that we're talking about today, The Ride of the Valkyries, is actually a bit of incidental music. It's the introduction to the third act of the opera, and is really just an extended sequence of the eight Valkyries, who are the daughters of Wotan and Brunhilde's sisters. 
coming down, riding their godly steeds to collect the bodies of fallen human soldiers and escort them into Valhalla. There is no dialogue or singing in this piece, just the instrumental vibes. And vibe, these instruments will do. <laughs> Wagner definitely sets up those vibes immaculately. The violins have upward 30-second notes that end on the fifth, which is just setting up the tension right from the start. The winds also play 16th notes in a kind of tremolo style throughout most of the piece, but we definitely hear it introduced here at the beginning. So overall, the first few measures seem a little on edge. You're not quite sure what's coming next, what to expect. Soon, we get a little motif, not yet the leitmotif, of dotted 8th, 16th, 8th notes in upward arpeggiations. These are played by the cellos, horns, and bassoons. Overall, a really deep and warm timbre. And this introduction builds an intensity for the next several measures, with the strings not only having their little runs up, but if you listen closely, they also start rushing downward. The way this is written, the first and second violins and viola all play their upward and downward lines at different times, so there's lots of overlap. It creates a wash of sound, but we can still figure out what's going on if we listen critically. It's not quite yet chaos. And then we finally reach the main event. The horns get to really shine as they play the Valkyrie leitmotif. that this piece was from the Die Valkyra opera. You may be familiar with it from a Bugs Bunny cartoon, perhaps. Or Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Whatever your poison, take your pick. This is, of course, though, the iconic power anthem of classical music. The upward trajectory, the starting in a minor key but modulating to a major key, the really steady forward movement without being hurried, all lead the melody to sounding like we are going into battle, but we are going to win. Additionally, we have this moment here where the upward flourish ends on D minor tonic. But in the second iteration phrase here, we have overcome adversity and now end on a major D tonic. Just one more note then on light motifs. Sorry. <laughs> you can tell this is a... Well, it's a big deal, right? Leitmotifs are a big deal in music <laughs> after Wagner, who really pioneered the concept. Because if you were to listen to the entirety of the ring cycle, the ride of the Valkyries, that leitmotif, would most likely play any time one of these Valkyries was involved in the action on stage. And it, was, it would be indicating that they're involved in some way. And if you don't see them, potentially, maybe a Valkyrie is not on stage, but you're hearing the Valkyrie light motif, it connects you back to that character. And this mm -hmm. is much like the Imperial March of Star Wars. This is like the power anthem, to use that term again, the power anthem of that light motif, which is there, this character's chance to shine, or these characters chance to shine 
much like the mm-hmm. Imperial March in Star Wars is. <laughs> Gotta talk about Star Wars. Gotta talk about Star Wars. It is... <laughs> It's not often that I get to talk about Star Wars on this podcast because those pieces of music are copyrighted, um, but I'll take any chance we can get. To add time for any action that's actually taking place on stage with these Valkyries, we then repeat the Valkyrie theme. So take note, in the background, the violins are still doing their little up and down embellishments, but also really listen closely to the woodwinds. They, too, have upward flourishes to get to their little tremolo bits, but they do not happen simultaneously either. So overall, it does produce a constant orchestral swell, where it seems like things are constantly increasing in intensity without really needing to change much. It may be easiest to hear this technique as you listen to the higher pitches first, like the flutes, and then once you know the motif that you're listening for, you can hear the lower sounds of the clarinets and the oboes as they come in as well. dramatic change in the orchestral texture. The violins and upper winds drop out completely, while the bassoons, oboes, and clarinets just hold a chord. The horns then play a slightly different motif that complements the light motif, but it's not as triumphant this time. Then, when the violins finally come back in, They have a grand crescendo that erupts into a whoosh of downward chromatics. Really the first major downward motif we've gotten in the foreground of this piece for its duration. And though this chromatic line leads to a more tragic sounding section, it does erupt back into that light motif, just as sure of itself as ever, but this time in a new key, which is the G minor slash B major key. You gotta love that circle of fits. This section also ramps us up to another new texture, which is the percussion. For the first time in the piece, we have a cymbal crash that really punctuates that this is the highest drama we have yet heard. And the violins yet again have this downward motif, but it seems less frantic than the chromatic line and is also just a downward B major scale. This also quickly leads us into a modulation back to D major. It's not the most subtle modulation that has ever been written, but it's standard and it's effective. if this were being performed as part of the opera and not as a standalone concert piece, there actually would be a break in the flow of the music where there's a bit of libretto sung between the Valkyries before we actually get back into it with the woodwinds tremoloing back in through a crescendo. With that, we are back to the violin chromatics. Right at the point of highest chromatic intensity, the orchestra cuts back and the piece seems to start back at the beginning with the upward flourishes and a rather more tentative, perhaps even sneaky, 
Valkyrie-like motif. percussion texture with the snare drum, cymbal, and triangle as we build up to perhaps the most shining example yet of the leitmotif. It's all hands on deck with the low brass for this one, as well as a more major sound in the background texture. winding up to hit the big finale, we modulate again, really taking the wind out of our sails. Now it's back to the chromatics again. For the sake of the stage action, this piece really is a bit more repetitive than one may have hoped for for such a power ballad. If you're listening to it just on its own, it might get a little boring, one might say. It, it does. The first, when you're listening to it by yourself, the first time the the Valkyrie theme comes in, you're like, yeah. And the second <laughs> time you're like, yeah. And then the third time you're like, okay. And then it just keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally um, in the opera, something happens on stage and you're like, oh yeah, again. And it's yes. back to normal. <laughs> It it really is almost the perfect movie music because it 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 swells when it needs to and disappears into you know it's not too eye or ear catching mm-hmm. that it's going to distract you from what's going on on stage when it does inevitably repeat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, su- now surprisingly, we don't actually end this piece with the theme of the Valkyries itself. This makes sense in the grand scheme of the opera as we're about to move on to a different scene and different characters, but it is somewhat unusual when we listen to it as a standalone piece. Because instead, we end with seemingly ever-intensifying downward scales and a quick flourish up to a final hit on the top. So hopefully it wasn't actually boring to listen a little bit more deeply to the music. Sometimes, even with more, quote, boring pieces, if you do listen to the little nitty-gritty details and pick things apart, it can be quite fun. Yeah, that's actually my favorite part about listening critically to classical music, especially when I have something like the Coffeehouse scripts to listen along with. (laughs) I can hear all those little things, um, and it, it really increases my enjoyment of the piece and and something that i would recommend if you're a more casual listener listen to listen to songs and to movie pieces and to classical pieces see if you can pick out the leitmotifs in there because everyone after wagner thought that that was a really stinking good idea and so they are everywhere now it's 
it's, it's immense. Yes. I mean, it was a good idea, though. It was. Yeah. It really was. So I guess there are some ideas of Wagner that we are okay with. Indeed. <laughs> and if you're okay with the idea of listening to the coffee house, share that <laughs> mimetic idea with a friend, family member, colleague, anyone else that you meet on the street that you think would enjoy the dulcet We're always tones telling people to of our meet podcasting people on the voice. Street. You gotta hit the streets, Allison. That's where the <laughs> real grassroots marketing comes from. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, if you're joining us from the streets, thank you. We appreciate you. Yes. And go back out there, hit the streets, <laughs> and share. Um, until next time when we hit the streets, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Ride of the Valkyries was performed by the University of Chicago Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or on Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.